Welcome to another episode of the Just Get Started podcast. I'm your host, Brian Andreco, and thanks again for being a part of this journey where we talk with people who are trying to live their most fulfilling life, which often tends to be on a much different path than it started out on. Whether it was changing careers, getting laid off from a job which sparked their entrepreneurial journey, or breaking through the noise to answer their calling. All of these types of situations and more, but they wouldn't have gotten to where they're at today if they didn't get started. We talk about the why and the how of these getting started moments and the lessons learned along the way. I'm grateful to have you listening in along on this episode, so let's get it started. On this week's episode, I welcome in Seth David Radwell, who is an author and speaker on the American Schism. And although Seth is an internationally known business executive and thought leader in consumer marketing, um, having served as president of Scholastic. He was the CEO of the Proactive Company, you know, the leading skincare uh, brand for acne. He was the president and chief revenue officer uh, of Guthrie Rinker, um, and I can go on and on. But we actually spent a lot of this interview talking about him getting started in writing and why it was so important for him to write this book called The American Schism, How the Two Enlightenment Hold the Secret to Healing Our Nation. And we just have a fascinating conversation about the writing process but also the need for this book, how, you know, to educate uh, people to have these open dialogues and conversations about what's going on um, in our, in our world, but really in our nation here uh, in the United States as well. So I hope you all enjoy this uh, conversation. I know I thoroughly did. So without further ado, please welcome in Seth David Radwell. Seth, welcome to the podcast. Glad to have you. I'm thrilled to be here, Brian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining. I'm excited to chat with you here. And, you know, always love to talk, talk with folks. Now, we obviously have a lot of background in business, but, you know, now you're an author yes. and you're writing. So I'm like, this is really unique because, you know, I look at it for myself where, you know, I published my first children's book, I had my second, and I just finished my third one. So those will come out next year. But it's like, it's a different animal. I never thought I would do stuff like that. So I actually, I want to start the conversation if we can. Sure. Is I want to, you know, I always like to talk about turning points, life changes, what you're doing now, you probably didn't think about 20 years ago that you'd be doing. So can you share a story or two? Like, how did you get on this path to writing to wanting to go down this new road in your life at this stage? Sure. Anything happened that sparked this? Absolutely. Well, for, for the, the backdrop that I should probably point out, Brian, is that uh, I've often taken shifts in my career over the course of the years, like new, new chapters, new beginnings, if you will. And part of that, I think, is a personal thing, is, which is for me personally, renewal is really important. If I keep doing the same thing or too much of the same thing, I tend to uh, kind of burn out. So that's a personal thing. But to answer your question specifically about what about this new direction of becoming uh, an author of, of a bestseller? In some ways, this is full circle for me because I studied in graduate school uh, public policy and economics. And I thought at that point that I was going to serve in the public sector because I was always fascinated by political philosophy and economics and public policy. And what ended up happening after grad school is that I got recruited into business through a consulting engagement with McKinsey, who I started working with. Mm -hmm. And so you know, most of my career has been in business, but the, the answer to the question about what happened was there was a couple of cocktail party moments, if you will, about three years ago when I started to notice that all of the intelligent, smart people around me who I've spent a lot of time working with at different functions, mm -hmm. they, while I've always enjoyed discussing political issues, I noticed that politics had become a third rail a and most of them were keeping their head in the sand because of the fear of bringing on the wrath of some group. It's so hard to talk about this stuff today. And yet, at the same time, I was deeply aware of the fact that for the first time, it seemed to me that objective truth was kind of falling away, that it wasn't so important uh, as it used to be. Nobody, Everybody seemed to have their own version of the truth. And to me, um, that spelled trouble for our democracy, for, for the ability to hand a democracy over to our kids, which is very important to me. So I actually took a break. I mean, I stopped my business career. I took a three-year hiatus to do a lot of reading and research and writing. And what was scary about it, Brian, was that I didn't know if I'd get published or where it would lead when I started. So it was kind of a jump off. I was fortunate that 
I had the opportunity financially to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. And I guess COVID kind of helped in some ways because it gave me a confinement period when I could really focus full time on it. So, so the answer was, I was, I was on my business, doing my business career for the last 30 years or so. And I, I did hear hit a turning point around 2018, where I decided that, you know what, I think it's really important that I do this. You know, I know a lot of folks struggle with this. I know I did for a long time, the the deciding, you know, to make the change saying, hey, I had a cocktail party, a couple instances, you said, and this is a pain in the neck. And then what happens is you wake up the next morning or the next week and you're like, yeah, I got a lot of this stuff going on. I'll do that down the road. Committing to that change, what was that process like for you in terms of maybe changing your mindset or whatever it was? So here's what happened. I mean, there were two parts to it. The first part was that the most recent business job that I had was I was CEO of a consumer products brand called Proactive. It's an acne brand. It's pretty well known. And before the, the, the years leading up to that, I had been uh, president and CEO of various companies. So I had been operating companies for 25 years. So the first part is that when in 2018, we sold that business. And so I was able to, I had a break, if you know the words, yeah. I was able to step away. And I kind of decided then that I didn't want to operate another company for a while because I had done that a lot. And it's exhausting when you're responsible for thousands of people. It's tiring on your career. So I decided that I was going to be a consultant, and I started advising early-stage companies. So the first shift was that I didn't want to keep running a big business. But, and, but during that time when I was consulting, I was reading and researching really for my own purposes, for my own enjoyment and interest. But the point that you're asking, when did I commit, was March of 2020. Because I had already done tons of research and had tons of notes, but I didn't actually think I was going to, I wasn't sure if I was going to write a book. So what happened in March of 220? Well, namely, uh, my client base kind of fell off because of COVID and confinement hit. So, so I was home ordering food in, one of the fortunate non, non-frontline workers. I looked at all my notes and I said, if I'm ever going to write this book that I've been thinking about now for a year, because at that point, I'd been researching and reading for about a year, but not committing. Yeah. And in March, I said, if there's ever a time I'm going to do this, it's now. And I started working in March of 2020 from around 8 a.m. to about 10 p.m. every day. I commit, committed that I was going to get to an end product. Still not sure if I would get published or not. But I was committed to writing this book. So that was the point, March of 2020. And, well, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because that that kind of confirms what I was thinking is like, it wasn't the next day after the cocktail parties, you know, kind of thought like, oh, I'm going to start writing. Like there was still, do you think it was because you were busy with the consulting, you were trying to, or, or was it the, um, were, you, were you kind of saying, you know what, I'm, I don't really want to do this, but I do. And it's kind of like this back and forth, you know, like, you know, Stephen Pressfield calls it the, the resistance yeah. of writing, you know, like, did you right. have that resistance to sit down and actually write? Was it a fear in your mind? Oh, absolutely. I mean, unequivocally. I mean, so, so look, so these cocktail party moments were like in 2017, 18. I mean, obviously with the Trump presidency, there was a real shift in how we talked about politics and it was bothering me and itching at me. And the response that, the behavioral response for me at that point was to read and research. I, there's one particular uh, writer, an academic on the enlightenment that I started to read a lot of. So, but at that point I, I was just reading and researching, not knowing. And of course, over 2019, I think there was a lot of resistance. I mean, a lot of fear. I've never, I mean, I've written a lot of, inform, I've written articles on marketing. I've, I've, I'm a, I've been a speaker in marketing conferences. I've never written a political science or political public policy book. So there was tons of fear. Can I really do this? How am I going to get published? I'm not an academic. You know, so yes, absolutely. And I, that, I, I think if it hadn't been for the pandemic, Maybe it just would have been this idea that I hadn't got around to it for a long time. So your yeah. life is funny. I, yeah. I, I, I was certainly trepidatious about it. And in retrospect now that I, I did end up having three publishing offers and the book has become a bestseller. So I feel proud. I mean, I, I feel like I'm proud of myself for having done it. I'm sure there are other things in my life where I, you know, where things I was thinking about doing something and ended up not doing it because I couldn't overcome that resistance. 
So I think that's a that's a natural uh, what you're referring to. Whenever you take on a new endeavor, is a natural uh, a feeling, a fear, resistance, not doing something that feels uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, the only other thing I'll mention in, in in that vein is that I learned early on in my career that putting yourself in an, a little bit of un, being uncomfortable is usually very, very good for growth. So what I used to call it when I would, when I would discuss it with um, uh, bi- you know, business people or people I was mentors to, I would usually say it's good to be medium-whelmed. And what I meant by that is sometimes it feels like when you're overwhelmed, you can be really anxious and scared. But it's also not good to be underwhelmed, meaning you know, it's too comfortable in your job, so you're not learning things. So I used to say the goal is to be medium-whelmed. Uh, and, and it was in that spirit that I think usually being able to try things that might be fearful or that might not be in your comfort zone is often very productive, at least I found for me. When you were doing the 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. type writing stuff, how did you, what was your process? Was it writing for an hour, taking a little break? Was it writing for five hours? Was it writing chapter by chapter or, you know, idea by idea? How did, how did you break it down? A little bit of all of the above. But what I will say is, you know, up to that point, I had already contacted some professors and talked to them about some ideas I had. So I had an outline. But but at that point in March, I took looked at that outline. I said, you know what? And so it required both working on the macro narrative, the overall outline and refining it, and as well as actually writing chapters. Mm-hmm. And I, I think I toggled back and forth. I will say that it was an intense, you know, it sometimes, it's, for me, it was an intense burst of creativity. I mean, I worked very long hours doing that. And it wasn't that, it wasn't a, at the first instance, in the first couple of months, it wasn't a grind. It felt really good to get all that stuff out. Mm-hmm. Now, I won't, I mean, I'll be honest, there was aspects later on that year that really were a grind, like editing it and getting it ready for fun. You know, it's one thing to get like the, the nuts and bolts of, of, of your argument down and write a lot and to, to perfecting it and revising it is laborious. And so I think I kind of hit the, the first couple of months in 2020 after March were extremely productive and fun in the fall of 220, at that point, I had been I had been uh, engaged by a publisher, and I had, I had deadlines. It was a bit more of a grind, but I was still determined to get it done. And did you work with an editor at that point? Yes. So I there were two cycles. So the first before I had a publishing deal, I worked with what's called a developmental editor, someone to help me think about the structure. And that's not about line editing. It's it's about really thinking through the argument you're trying to make and what the book structure should look like. And so I call that a developmental editor. I also hired two research assistants because I was dealing with historical information and political science uh, ideas and not having a PhD in either one. I do have a master's degree in public policy. I knew I would have blind spots. So I hired two researchers to help me research things that I should be aware of. And they were they were helping me during that time as well. So I had these two researchers from Columbia, one in history, one in political science, helping me dig stuff up to read and pointing me in new directions because I was still reading a lot. And then I had this developmental editor. That was, I would say, from like April or May through most of the summer. And then once I decided to go with Greenleaf Books, they hired me an editor. They, they, they gave me a more of a copy editor. You know, that was when the book was done, well done, quote unquote done, draft was done, and then we could do actual line editing. So we, I, they hired, a, they, they gave me a, a line editor who was very helpful. And then, of course, I had proofreading. So there were a couple of rounds where this happened. How did it feel getting beat up over your work? <laughs> like oh, It's hard, always hard, <laughs> never easy. I mean, one of the things that was hard for me was asking for you know one of the processes you go through when you when you're publishing a book and I knew this a little bit because I had had an early earlier in my career I worked as an executive marketing executive in publishing is asking for endorsements from famous people like saying will you read this and and give give me an endorsement let me know what you think and I and it was it was it's scary and get it you get beat up a lot but you get a lot of constructive criticism 
And then you have, for me personally, I had these breakthrough moments where people that I really respected um, had incredibly good feedback on the book. For one example would be David Garrow, who's a Pulitzer Prize winning historian. And, you know, I got a copy to him when it was in a galley and he really liked the book and ended up providing a great endorsement. So things like that make you feel really validated. I did have like some professors. I, I had two professors in at various uh, top universities who gave me some critical feedback early enough that I could restructure some things and respond. So that's always hard to go through a little bit. Um, there was another, one of the developmental editor and I, uh, he beat me up pretty thoroughly on one aspect of content that I wanted in the book. And I was working hard at refining that ultimately he thought wasn't helpful and I dropped it. And that was kind of hard to do as well. But so, so again, various experiences like that. Who makes that decision? And, and again, this might not be a blanket for everyone, but in your situation, if you said you wanted to keep that in the book, would it have stayed in? Well, that was before I had an editor, a, a publisher. So I was still working at developing it and I could have kept it in. The, your question is interesting because when it comes to, when you decide to pick a publisher, and you get an editor assigned by the company that's going to publish your book, there it's a back and forth. I mean, obviously, I think the, the writer has the last word, but there are suggestions about what to leave in and what to take out. And because these are professional editors, it behooves, I think, the writer to listen to their point of view. Yeah, it, you know, it comes down to, you know, if you self-publish, you don't have any oversight, but yet you don't get the expertise and maybe some benefits there. But with the publisher, maybe you get too much or you get you know some thoughts that maybe be helpful but some where you don't know you know because you think about all these things I mean there's you know thousands and you know thousands of books maybe I don't know how many you've read in your life I haven't read thousands maybe you know see them all behind me oh well, yeah that is a yeah. I have a lot of them here um, um, yeah but you know you think about that and it's like how many you know we can't talk to a lot of those people anymore but like how many is like no like I kept this in and that ended up being like the most relevant spot where maybe an editor would have right. taken it out. You know, you don't know that obviously until later you on. You don't know it. But I think, I think though your point's good. I mean, I ended up, one of the choices I had to publish the book was with a very well-respected and famous publisher. And um, one of the thoughts in my calculus and my, my, the publisher I went with, which was fine, was a smaller press. But I think there were two things that led me away from the very famous, well-respected publisher. Of course, I wanted to go with him because I thought the book would get more exposure, which it might have. But his time frame didn't work. for He didn't want to put the book out till next year because he was busy. And I felt it was very important that the book come out this year after the election. So there, for example, going with the smaller press, I had more control of the timing. Mm -hmm. So well, let's go into that a little bit. We'll still, we'll kind of skate on both um, roads here, but the title of the book, the premise of the book for everyone that's listening. Sure. sure. It's called American Schism, how the two enlightenments hold the secret to healing our nation. And it is, uh, it's really an investigative tracing of the roots of our divisions. I, I, I asked the question, I had never seen our country as divided as, as it is now. I think our political dialogue has collapsed. And I wanted to find out what that was about. I was convinced that it was not new, that there were antecedents that were important in history. And so I was determined to get to the root of those antecedents. And in fact, that's what led me on this journey. It was really an investigative journey. So, uh, the book is really, there are three parts to the book. The first one looks at a framework of the Enlightenment. So our, our nation was founded based on a time in history called the Enlightenment, and there's a reason for why that was so important. So that's explained in the book, but you, the usual thinking of the Enlightenment and how it affected our country is kind of a conventional narrative that I push back against based on a writer named Jonathan Israel, who was, wrote the foreword for the book and was an influential mentor of mine. And he maintains that in fact, there were two competing visions of what America should be that happened at our founding. And, uh, and I, I kind of conferred with that. I, I think that's right. I describe what those competing visions are. 
And I think that those competing visions contending for prominence in the 1770s and 1780s are at the root of what's dividing us today. So that, that's one of the theses of the book. The first is to lay out this framework for these two different visions of America. And then the second part of the book takes a look at five different periods of our history using that enlightenment uh, structure as a lens to understand those five, those five episodes. And then the third part of the book brings it to today and recommends a path forward for how to get out of our morass, how to re rehabilitate, if you will, our political dialogue. And so American schism is, is, is very much kind of a historical political thesis, but it's not, it tries not to be partisan. It tries to look at the basis of understanding why we are where we are. Well, now I wrote a note here, and maybe this is a good time to circle back, um, is around, you talked about and the cocktail parties, you know, you fo felt folks had their head in the sand. And I was going to, I was going to ask your opinion on this or your thought, because I wrote two notes here. Right. Do they have, because this is, and this is purely just my observation of the world, the way I look at it there, I could see two potential paths of why they have their head in the sand. One is no one actually wants to do the research and de detail of like, basically, um, you know, am I wrong? Could I be wrong? You know, everyone wants to be right. And just kind of like, I'm not going to look at any research because maybe it makes them make sure, you know, maybe it confirms I'm wrong. And the second thing is people just don't want to talk about it because it is such a hot button item. And it's just like, I don't even want to get down a rabbit hole. Right. Do you find it's both? Or do you find like when you were mentioning that earlier, like, did you find it was one area or another in terms of why it's so polarizing? Right. So a lot of this is in, is written about in the book in, in some detail. But what I will say is that I think people have in, in the last couple of years, we've more and more found ourselves in, in what I call two bubbles. I mean, one of them is the partisan bubble we've heard about. And that's because if you get your news from one source, you know, whether it's Fox News or CNN, or you tend to hear reaffirmed, you, you, you pick up on snippets that reaffirm your point of view, as opposed to hearing contrary points of view. So Confirma that confirmation bias, basically. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And that helps form yeah. um, uh, very much our, our political uh, partisan bubble, if you will. But the other bubble that I think it was as relevant is what I call the time bubble. For example, where uh, people thought that what we were going through was so unique. You know, one example I would give is the January 6th attack on the Capitol, which was, you know, extremely uh, difficult moment for the country, I think, and we're still kind of debating about what actually happened that day. But very rarely in the discussion do you hear the fact that this was hardly the first attack on the government. I mean, after a few years after the Constitution was written, we had something called the Whiskey Rebellion, which was a, an attack on the an attempt to overthrow the government. And even before the Constitution, there was a, an event called Shays Rebellion, which I think is very relevant for what happened on January 6th. My point being, the history is our is our friend here. Understanding where we've been and um, what his, history can tell us can act as a solve for our wounds today. So that was the other bubble I think people were in. Now, a lot has been written about this. What's happened, part of this is a function of what's happened to our media environment. Our media environment today incentivizes, sensationalizes the extremes. And so my research shows that over 70% of Americans are actually part of what I call a frustrated majority, meaning that they believe that the extremes don't reflect how they feel. And they also believe that their voice is being crowded out. And that's because when people say outrageous things in social media on either extreme, they tend to get more attention, they get clicks. And that's what, what people notice. Now, that's a function of our media system, which needs different incentives, which I, I talk about in the book, especially in the third part of the book. But I, I will say that what happens is that People, uh, the 70, this exhausted majority actually, for example, believes that we have more in common as Americans than we don't, whereas the extremes believe the opposite. And, and the point being, that, go back to your initial question about why did people put their head in the sand, the risk 
of saying something that's going to offend one of those extremes ends up becoming very great because you'll get canceled or you'll get rage. You know, there's, there's, there's tremendous uh, uh, negative consequences for being becoming the subject of, of one of the extremes, either right or left. I, criti I criticize them both. And in fact, by the way, on a side note, there's a great book called The Constitution of Knowledge by Jonathan um, Rauch, which came out recently, which talks a lot about this. And of course, I touch on it in my book as well. But you know, the, at the end of the day, these extreme uh, points of view, which are drowning out what I call rational debate, is a very problematic. When you look across our history, you see that we've made most progress when we've had vigorous debate and disagreement, when we've kept it grounded in reality, in facts, in in truth, in, in what was in, in truth. So there was, there's always been a mix of emotion and fact in our debate. But my argument in the book and what I try to illustrate is that over the past couple of years, the emotional part has crowded out the reason. There's no, there's very little reason left. It's all, it's all about wrath, anger, rancor. And by the way, that, that's a function of the media environment, but it's also a function of our politicians who figured out that, um, and you know, Trump was a master at this, that pushing buttons, getting people worked up over uh, emotionally laden issues is a much better motivator to get people active than kitchen table issues. That then you know what would used to be the you know tax policy and economic issues. That those are interesting and people care about those. But these hot button issues are much more uh, have much more emotional valence, and as a consequence, are more effective for getting people out there, getting people to to speak out. So so that's not new. In fact, our history shows, again, that demagogues over many, many eras have used these types of arguments to curry favor and build support amongst the base. But what is new now is how our new media tends to amplify those things. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of good in what you just said there. You know, I look at it from the media standpoint, and we could probably talk about this for five hours, but... I don't know if we'll go down that rabbit hole, but just the whole point of the, they, they have to, what I found, I, I kinda, I'm going to take it out of the political realm just to make it, you know, even totally away from that. But like sports as an example, like I remember watching, you know, I'm a big sports fan and uh, I remember watching, you know, ESPN 20 years ago. And it's not just, I'm not calling out ESPN. It's everyone, right? Awesome. Like sports center. I used to watch as a kid. Like I'd watch like five times a day. I loved, loved it. But now I have a hard time watching anything. Plus, you know, Partly it's what I'm doing in my life. I have a lot of those things going on, but two, it's like, it's so hard because it's, we have to fill up time. So like the, the stuff they're talking about, it's like, there's so much information. So to your point, it's like before there were just three or four media companies, right. And news, you know, things, or maybe, Hey, local news is the only thing. Now there's so much opportunity. Like there's so much noise out there yes. and ev everyone has to kind of be shouting louder and louder and louder. Right. So and then you right. forget about it in three days anyways. Um, you know what I'm Correct. saying? So it's, it's, it seems yes. like there has to be so much talk where now, again, it's it's kind of the alternative facts or whatever these things, like the, uh, you know, all these opinions instead of actual real facts, things that are going on. You know, so that's, that's part of the problem. In fact, you know, one of the, one of the, the I'd use an analogy. I'm glad you mentioned being a sports fan because I am as well, used to be a, a ice hockey player when I was younger, but I've always been a sports fan. And the, the way... You know, we all have as human beings, we have this evolutionary history millions of years ago. We have these instinctual uh, drives to be associated with an in-group and to attack an out-group. Sports is the best example of where we, we use those things. So if you're in a sports arena, you know the feeling of being for your team and it gets us really, really worked up. What I say in the book is that what's happened is, you know, that that's a, that, those emotions and those primitive drives um, – are part of our lizard brain, our amygdala, are, are wonderful for the sports arena, but they're a terrible arena to make public policy in. And that's what's happened. We, we're, we're reacting the same way as if it's a sports game at a political rally. And, and that's, that, that's problematic. And, and it's problematic because pub, public policy is nuanced. One of the great examples, uh, Brian, that I talk about is immigration. So over the last couple of years, this illustrates why 
shouting and emotions is not the best way to address public policy issues. We have significant and serious problems with immigration. And over the last couple of years, the extremes on both ends, like build a wall or open borders, we end up uh, uh, characterizing or, or, or caricaturizing the other point of view. So in other words, it's a caricature. And one side displays the other one as extreme, and, the, and therefore the other side has to bounce back and fight back, and they become more extreme. The truth is that immigration is a complex set of issues that needs to be thought through. And ironically, eight years ago, the Gang of Eight on the Hill had a very comprehensive bill for immigration reform on the table. It actually passed one of the chambers. And the reason why I bring it up is because that bill was far from perfect, but it had a lot of specifics and addressed many of the issues in a very thoughtful way. Now, it was didn't make everyone happy. The left was concerned because it had a form of quotas that, that on immigration, had certain controls. They weren't called quotas. but And the right was unhappy because the same detailed bill, for example, had a pathway to citizenship for dreamers. But it was a pretty rig rigorous path. I'm not saying it was perfect. My point is, is that it was a detailed set of solutions that were based on facts. Hmm. Now, a couple of years later, after shouting about to each other about building walls and, and open borders, we're much further away from a solution. So, so it's going to take, a sh uh, of course, neither side. Immigration has been a fundamental drive of our success in the country. We need immigration, but it, ha it can't be uncontrolled. We can't have open borders because that, that's equivalent to being invaded. We need a process that's based on both a, a rational framework that, that takes into account both our needs as a country as well as humanitarian issues, which, because we've always been, uh, we've always had uh, part of that as our immigration formula. And once again, the history is a guide. If you look across the hundred, hundreds of years of our history, there are times when our immigration policy has been quite uh, open when we needed certain skills. And at other times, it's been quite uh, um, closed or restricted. And to some degree based on you know racial fears and other things like that. So we've toggled back and forth as well on that. But again, I think today we're, we're, we're screaming at each other without making, it's not productive. Our immigration discussions are no longer productive. Well, it goes back to one of the points. And again, I, I'm probably naive in a lot of this, but you know the approach I've taken, and I've changed a lot probably from just being, having zero knowledge on anything from a political standpoint to, to what I do today, um, and I still have very minimal knowledge, is I've taken the, the approach of I'd rather be informed than be right. Right. Because I grew up in, you know, I'm from upstate New York and I've, I, I grew up in that, like, you know, no, you got to, you know, kind of the ego, you got to be right, you know, and, and kind of that type of thing. You know, there was a lot of that around me. And what I realized, and, and this is in more recent years, is like, I would rather sit and have a discussion with someone and they tell me something. And one of the things I, and, and I encourage a lot of people to, to maybe go through this thought pattern is like, if you don't know enough about a topic, it's okay to say, Tell me, Tell me more. more. Absolutely. Or, or even better, even better. Hey, I don't, I want to go and learn more and research this. Can we talk again in a few days or next week about this? I'm really intrigued, but I need to do more research. What do we normally do? We have one opinion we saw maybe on a headline reading or on Twitter or something, and we shout that out. And then that becomes the argument. You know what I'm saying? It can't have that. You, what you're describing something that's 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 dealt with in American schism, the book in a great detail, which is, you know, at the end of the day, there are two main sections of two main types of changes that I advocate in, in the, the book, in the third part of the book. One of them is about structural reforms, which I are needed, and I won't go into that right now, but we can come back to it. But the other one is a change in mindset, which you're and the change in mindset is precisely about what you are talking about, Brian. It's about how we talk to each other. Mm. It's about really being open to listening. It's about learning more. It's it's about it's not it's the it's the antithesis of talking to each other over Twitter. So it's it's very it's really important what you're saying. And I talk about it a lot. You know, one of the fundamental questions that we have to ask ourselves is, do we believe in the value of a democratic republic? Do we believe in a democracy? Because at the end of the day, a democracy is hard. 
You know, autocracies are much easier. Edicts are handed down. Either you follow them or you go to jail. You know, it's very straightforward. Democracy requires us to talk to each other. It requires an educated populace. And, you know, we've moved away from that. And we think that tweeting at each other is going to, going to help provide the fodder for how we're going to learn from each other. No, it's not. It's not. And, and that's what the point you're making. So I talk a lot about in the book how we how we actually do this. And in fact, I'm working with a group called Braver Angels, which is a very important organization. I've done a couple of sessions, a couple of events with them that try to get people who are reds and blues together, who are open to listening. And it's usually by Zoom, but, but they're like guidelines, like you can't use ad hominem attacks. It's not personal, it's about issues. You have to be open to listening. And the, that kind of stuff is what we need to be doing. Because I believe that at the end of the day, we do have a lot in common. And we do, uh, as Americans, we have a very important credo, which is partially based in the Declaration of Independence, which I talk about in the book. And it's partially based on our model of meritocracy, which is quite flawed, but which has some good things about it, where America is still a place where, you know, a lot of people can make it, even though they may not have come from noble birth. And that's pretty powerful. Mm -hmm. um, we're also a great example, despite all of our flaws in self-government. So for all those reasons, I believe we have to re rebuild how we talk to each other. And that's very much at the center of the book. The, the structural stuff. And yeah, we, we might have the time to go really deep in this. And my assumption, I, I put two things when you said that down is the two party system and term limits. Those are the two things that came to mind. They're both they're both fundamental. And so, for example, I spend a lot of time in the book talking about why you know, term limits have pros and cons. But I make the case that that because the, the monopoly of the two political parties, along with the amount of time and energy candidates spend trying to get reelected has become so extreme that at this point, the benefits of term limits outweigh the, not the negatives. And I think we should really have them. And so that's discussed in the book. And yes, I think the two-party system is, is hurting us because, and by the way, this has been an issue for quite a while, but they have such a stranglehold, the two parties, on the, the political establishment, on all of the money and politics, that there's a lack of other voices. Today, when a third party candidate runs, it's like they're a spoiler. They can never win. But there are very simple mechanisms of changing that. Well, I, I discuss in the book, one structural change is called ranked choice voting. So in ranked choice voting, you have you could have five or six candidates running. And the third, the, the extra ones are not spoilers. In fact, what happens is people rank their choices of the six. So if you happen to pick a candidate who get, doesn't get any many votes, gets thrown out, your second choice now counts. So it, it's shown that ranked choice voting actually eliminates the problem of spoilers, but it also more, more closely reflects the desires of the voter because if their first choice doesn't win or get in the, fi the finals, so to speak, their second choice counts and so on. So there, there are some simple structural mechanisms. And the good news is, Brian, we are now, some states are, uh, are adopting ranked choice voting at the, at the local level more and well, more. Well, they just did this with New York, right? Yes, correct. The mayor, mayor always, correct. And so more and more, I think we're realizing it doesn't have to be, you know, it's funny how it's, right now it's happening at the local level. But my sense is things like ranked choice voting and proportional elections can help break the lock that the two parties have on the system. Hmm. And that is required. There's a great book called The Politics Industry by Catherine Gale and Michael Porter from Harvard Business School that talk about this in some detail. And that's also discussed in my book. So I, I'm going to put you on the spot if I can, and I'll, I'll let you go where you want on this. But I'm, I'm actually curious because we're talking about the changing mindset and, you know, getting more information, all that, as you went through all this research and information and put this all together, did your belief cha system change? Like, did you think one thing going into it? And then because of all the research, you change your opinion on something, maybe politically or a, a stance on a certain issue? Was there anything in particular that comes to mind? Yes. I mean, so, so that's a great question. And I think I, I think as the more research I've done on some of this stuff, the, I've changed my mind on a lot of things. <laughs> um, there are so many, let me use an example. I mean, one example might be the, the debate that we're ha you know, having on uh, voting security. 19 states have put in new laws this year 
based on what happened in 2020 to, to make to, uh, under the auspices of making elections more secure. Mm-hmm. And I think I thought that was, I mean, I was pretty for that, you know, politically. I thought it was important that we have, we, we stopped fraud in elections. Uh, and when I did research on this and understood the data and the history, I came to a different perspective. And, and namely, I mean, when you look at the way election regulations have been used over the course of our history, and you look at the data, the type of fraud that people are afraid of is actually fraud that's, that doesn't happen. We, there is some fraud in, in elections. There's data on this. And, but it's usually, at the, uh, uh, it's usually not at a, a, sc- a mass scale. It's usually not enough to turn an election. It's, it's like a couple of hundred votes in each cycle. There are people that try to cheat the system. On the other hand, when you look at the history of voter regulations, they've been used as a sometimes thinly and sometimes not so thinly disguised effort of voter suppression for for, for decades. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've looked at some of these voter laws in 19 states, and I think there probably are some things in them that could make voting more secure, quote unquote. But I become, based on my research, more skeptical. Mm-hmm. I think that that the real motivation for many of them is a thinly veiled attempt at making voting harder for certain populations. That would be an example. And this goes back to, you know, we can kind of circle back to like the party system and all that is like trying to almost game the outcome, if you will, instead right, of making so for, a little for, bit, instead of making, because if everyone, you know, the real, like, I don't know, what was the, and I know in 2020, there was a lot of, a lot more people that voted, I think, than the than 2016 in terms of the presidential right, election. Turnout. Right. But even that number was a the percentage based on the population was, yeah, it was maybe low. sixty instead of instead yeah. of fifty. Yeah, no, I mean, it's true. Some democracies make voting a requirement, yeah. and I, there's an argument for that. Although I'm not for it, and I could get into why. But but the point is, voting needs to be easy, but of course secure. But I think that the the 19 voting legislate voting laws that passed um, have have a, a, a different agenda, in my opinion. Uh, and I think that uh, that's an example where re- doing some research and really looking at the data help. There are other examples like that. I think immigration is another one where I think I, my, I as the more I've learned, I think my position has shifted uh, more and more. So, you know, and some of the things I do in the in the book are compare our democracy, our republic to other republics that are that are dealing with some of the same issues. So, you know, absolutely, I think I think my point of view continues to evolve. I mean, one of the most important things I argue in the book is part, as part of this mindset change is being open to the idea that you might be changed. You might you might move on an issue. Mm-hmm. There are issues where we've seen in our short lifetimes that the public the public as a whole has moved on. I mean, one of the great examples would be would be gay marriage, whereas like 20 years ago, it was un, unheard of. And the public was like 80 to 90 percent against um, a, the notion of marriage for same sex couples. And I think, you know, the, the society has moved a lot on that. I discussed this in the book, too. Um, and there are reasons why that particular issue has had more success than some others. Namely, it's not so it's not zero sum with immigration. People are very afraid that. If we allow more people in, it's going to take away from what they have. So it, it, it appears more zero-sum. I think the advocates for same-sex marriage were successful to, to a large degree is because they made a very rational case that recognizing the love and commitment between a same-sex couple doesn't take away anything from heterosexual marriage. It just means more love in the world. You know, so it's not a zero-sum game. And so I think that that structural, rational argument was one of the big factors that moved that moved people over. I know it didn't happen overnight over the course of years. So uh, what I'm saying is that absolutely being open to changing your opinion and being open to data, as as Jonathan Roach describes it, it's it's in order to build knowledge, it's required. We have to be open to the, the hypothesis that we're wrong or the, the possibility that we're wrong and need to rethink it. And I encourage people to do that all the time. This is this is awesome. So the two two more questions for you, and then I'll get you out of here. Um, I'd love to talk to you for hours, but the uh, going back to so the writing, and and I want to make sure you know we kind of hammer this home. So we talk about the turning points that happened. I wanted you to share a little bit because you were known for a while as an executive, a CEO. You had this prominent position. 
and then you were kind of working for one. You had your, yeah. you were, you were kind of in charge of you kind of thing. Um, right. Can you, cause I, I know a lot, I struggled this when I, you know, I used to be a, a PJ professional. I used to run a teaching business. You know, teach golf for a living. And when I transitioned out of that many years ago, that was hard for me because I was known as the golf guy. Everyone knew me as the golf guy. And it took a long time to kind of get out of that uh, label, if you will. Was that a struggle for you? And and, and how did you deal with it? So it, it, this, I mean, it, I, I made a brief reference to it before, but I probably didn't really describe it. For me, new challenges, I find uh, uh, both scary, but also engaging. I like, I like that. And I think, I, you know, so it was definitely uh, difficult. It's a definite, a huge shift. So I was known as a marketing expert, specifically a direct marketing expert. I was an executive uh, CEO proactive before that I was president of some other brands. And that was what I was known for. And I was pretty well known in the marketing industry. In fact, famously, you know, when I was hiring a publicist for this book, um, many of the publicists I talked to would say to me, well, I'd love to be your publicist, but if you want to write a book about marketing, you'd, I'd be great. But what are you going? How are you going to write about public policy? Like I, I'm not going to be a publicist about that. So I got rejected a lot. And the whole argument in the book, though, is that because I'm from the private sector, where we put an emphasis on problem solving, uh, that's what's sorely missing in the public arena. Too, there's too much political energy that's not focused on problem solving, but focused on getting reelected. And so I, the way I spin it is that my, my outside perspective, I'm not a political hack, I'm not a politician, I'm a business person, that I have a fresh perspective on some of these ideas. And that is reflected in the book. So what I, to answer your question, what I tried to do was I recognized how much a departure it was from my area of expertise, but I tried to use my expertise in a new way to make relevant what I thought was a new perspective on these issues that were not in my in my normal portfolio of activities, if you will. All right. So someone's listening in, they're getting started. I always like to end on this. And there's no right or wrong answer. So whatever you've been thinking about comes to mind. And I like to say probably the most impactful that you found in your career as advice, a quote, who knows what it is, but if someone, you know, I like to say, think about all these, like we write these post-it notes and, and thoughts and everything. I, if someone's putting a post-it note on their computer and they're going to look at it to inspire them, to motivate them to get started, is there any piece of advice or insight you'd share with them? One of the most important ones I think is if you're start, if you're particularly starting something new, that's really scary is to, I mean, the way I would frame it is to, take the steps, play as if, and let go of the results. Meaning you don't know if it's going to work or, or not. But it, it's, it's almost like saying to the question, if I was going to write a book about politics, or if I was going to write a book about addressing what I see as this collapse of political discourse, what would that look like? I probably can't do it. So in other words, it, it's, it's almost as if it's the, the goal of acting as if what would it be like? What would what would the substance? And I think sometimes you have to play that game of saying this is a really scary thing. So I don't know if I'm going to do it. But if I were to do it, how, how would I do it? What would it look like? And I think that gets you started. I mean, so in terms of starting new things, that's a trick that I've used. In terms of evaluating where you are in your career and if you're growing, and this is advice I've given to, to folks I've mentored over the years. You know, people think that, you know, how much money they're making or their title, those things are so important. I think the most important thing in your early career, especially your 20s and 30s, is how much not only are you, are you enjoying what you do every day, but how much are you learning? I mean, you've got to be learning a lot every day. If you're doing the same thing or if you're, if you're you know, if, you're, if your skill set is not sharpening, it's becoming kind of a road job that you're good at so you can earn money, but you're not growing, I think that's just a warning sign. So more about like assessing what you want to do and where you are in your career, I think you want to make sure that you're, you're, you're growing and learning a lot every day and having fun. If you're not having fun, if you're not enjoying it, if it's, if it's a drag, you owe it to yourself to do something that you love. So those are some, I, those I, are some yeah. guidelines I, I would give to people. 
You know, it just made me think of, I wrote this blog article last year, maybe this kind of metaphor or is it an analogy, whatever, maybe it's a metaphor. Well, uh, will hit home for some folks, but I called it the toolbox of knowledge. And the whole point I was, I was using the analogy or the, the metaphor or whatever that, uh, you know, if you had something broken in your house and you had a handyman come and they only brought a screwdriver where they're limited in terms of what they could do. Right. But if they came in and brought a big toolbox or two of, of stuff, now there's a lot of other opportunities that they could help you out with in that whatever situation. Because you, you, they don't know once you start, you know, removing the the the, um, the backing to the wall or whatever. So it's the same thing. It's like as, as I coach a lot of people, I'm like, you know, if you're in a sales world in a role, you should be talking with the top sales reps. What are they doing well? What aren't they doing? Listening on a call. Right. You should be talking right. to marketing. How do they get their messaging across? How do they talk across the line? So like being able to acquire skills that it may help you in your current career or current job, or it may be a catalyst to get you to somewhere else. Yeah, you know? I think that's a great analogy. I think thinking about it as a toolbox is great. Yeah. And so, you, you know, you should be probably always sharpening the tool that you think you're best at, but also acquiring other tools. I mean, and both of those are important. Great, well, great and, analogy. And plus two, as you know, the world changes. So what was important 20 years ago may not be relevant today. We see this with a lot of changing in job and, the gig economy and all this stuff. It's like sure. you know, life changes. So for sure. Um, so this is awesome. Where, if someone wants to uh, say hello, shout out to you, where do they go? Where's the best? Spot? Well, first of all, I would love to hear from your listeners. So uh, there's a site called American schism book.com. And so it's American schism, S C H I S M and then book. And there they can find out more about the book, but as importantly, they can write to me and um, they can contact me there and, uh, and ask me questions and they can also find places to buy the book. It's available wherever books are sold, but I love to hear from listeners, readers. So uh, I would encourage your listeners if they're interested in American schism and if they're open to a very different type of, of book, um, I would encourage them to take a look. Seth, this has been awesome. I I really appreciate the dialogue. This was great. Thank you for joining today. It has been a pleasure, Brian. It's great to be here with you. But I hope you all enjoyed that great interview, and thanks again for stopping by. And just one more quick thing before you run along in your day. If you were looking for some more resources, some more insight, you know, inspiration, things that get you going a little bit further on your journey, feel free to head over to my website, brianondraco.com forward slash subscribe, and you can sign up for my weekly newsletter that comes out. That's more of a digest of a lot of information that I discover throughout the week, whether it's a new podcast I listen to, or maybe it's a great follow online that's very insightful or a video I came across. I put that in a digestible form that you get once a week as well as I blog three times a week. And these are very micro-type blogs, one- to five-minute reads. They hit your inbox Monday, Wednesday, and Friday morning and maybe give you a little dose of inspiration to get you going on your day. So feel free to sign up for those if it's something you might find as value. Thanks again for listening in. I hope you guys have a great day, a phenomenal week, and we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Take care.